So tonight, my lesson is titled, I don't usually have a title, so brace yourselves, I did a title. The King They Asked For, 1 Samuel 9 and 10. Before I get to 1 Samuel 9 and 10, if I say the number 54, does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yes. Say what? No, is it 54 verses exactly? No, I did that. No. So if I said 54, nobody knows what I mean by that? No. There's 54 days till Christmas. I really thought there'd be some kind of Christmas lover. It's the day after Halloween, and they're like Jones into like start decorating, you know? There's 54 days till Christmas. I like Christmas. I also enjoy Thanksgiving, so I'm not usually an early person. Now, so, I, oh, <laughs> okay, all right, sorry, bring it back, bring it back. Is it really the out of verses? Okay, that's freaky. Okay, wow, let's just let that set for a minute there. Okay, and the reason I brought that up is my sister in law last week asked me, she's like, Well, what do you want for Christmas? And I told her I couldn't really think of anything I needed. Because, you know, when you when someone's going to buy you something, you can't think of what you need, right? You only think of what you want when you're not supposed to have it or you don't have money, right? And she was like, with an exasperated sigh, she's like, Courtney, it's not about what you need. What do you want? I'm very practical. I think of what I need. And she's like, no, 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 no. I want to buy you what you want. And that got me thinking, wants versus needs. Sometimes we use these words interchangeably, but we shouldn't because they're very different words. They're two different words. So at its core, needs are requirements for survival. Needs are about our health and our safety. And if you're a little kid, you learn in school, or if your mom's teaching you, what are the three basic needs you have? Food, clothing, and shelter, right? If we aren't getting what we need, our health and safety can suffer, and it could result in our death. That's our need. Wants are desires. They're optional. Wants are for our happiness. So needs equal survival. Wants equals satisfaction. There is very much a difference between what we want and what we need. So, too, there is a difference in the type of leader we want and the leader that we need. Now, this is not a new problem. Ever since Adam and Eve's decision to go it on their own in the garden, we have been, as a human race, engaged in an ongoing debate about who or what will govern our lives. And what we've seen over the course of history is that what we want is a leader and a king who will tell us what we want to hear. What we want is a king or a government that will make us feel good about ourselves. But what we need is a king that will tell us the truth about ourselves and what our needs um, and what needs to be done about that truth. And this leads to our passage tonight. This fall, we are studying for Samuel, a study of the history of how the nation of Israel was finally transformed from a kind of loose federation of tribes into a united kingdom under a good and noble king. And now we're at a pivotal moment in the narrative the narrative of the whole book, when the transformation begins, when Israel finally gets a king. But what we're going to see isn't just the story of Israel, but it's very much the story of our own lives. Now, up until this point, Israel ultimately had 
um, all these judges, many judges, and these judges tended to operate in their own region. What this did was underscore the point that Israel ultimately had only one leader, one king, and that was God. Many judges and one king. The pattern or how it worked was that God would raise up and appoint a leader when needed, but in chapter 8, they were done with that pattern. The people wanted a king. As we saw last week, the phrase, such as the other nations, is the reason why they wanted a king. Israel felt left out. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to be like everyone else. Give us a king like they have a king. And God did promise to be their king, to be their leader, to fight their battles, and would win for them. But that would require faith. And these people would need to be dependent on the Lord. But the people were tired of faith. They wanted someone that they could see. Someone who has a clear superior force that can go out and fight the battles for them. To win for them. They want sight, not faith. So they reject God as their king and Samuel as their judge. And the Lord responded by telling Samuel, I'll give them the king that they asked for. So as we end chapter 8 last week and we enter chapter 9 this week, we are left wondering, will Israel be given a king? Who will it be? And what will this mean for Israel? So our text tonight for chapters 9 and 10, there's been a massive scene change. All sorts of new characters are introduced, 54 verses apparently. A new chapter in the life of Israel has begun here. Lots of verses introducing us to Saul, Samuel meeting Saul, Samuel anointing Saul as king, and then an assembly is called for everyone to recognize Saul as king. But there's so much more here than we realize. Far more is going on in chapters 9 and 10 than just narrative filler. The people had asked for a king. In the previous lesson, chapter 8, the people rejected God as their king. And they want an earthly king like the other nations. And here in verse 2 of chapter 9, we meet Saul, whose name means, get this, the one who is asked for. Did anyone know that? Saul means the one who is asked for. That was new for me when I was studying. And it's in these details of these two chapters that we are told just what kind of king they want and the type of king they're going to get. So my theme for this lesson, for chapters 9 and 10, is when you reject God as king, you get the king you asked for, but not the one you need. I'm going to go through four scenes of this narrative. Our first scene has to do with some lost donkeys. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. I asked Sarah and uh, Stephanie if they knew a song about donkeys we could sing beforehand, but... They didn't deliver. I didn't expect them to. But donkeys. There's a lot of verses about donkeys. Okay? We are introduced to a man named Kish and his son Saul. Through the lineage and other descriptions, we find they're a wealthy family, an influential family, a respected family from the tribe of Benjamin. We also learn about Saul's physical stature and impressive appearance. He is handsome, standing a head higher than anyone else. He is just the sort of person to impress those who've asked for a king. So much focus on the outward or external qualities. No mention is made of a spiritual disposition. And I point that out because do you remember in the beginning of the book, the very first few verses were introduced to a family, a man named Elkanah, or my mom says Elkanah, but Elkanah. 
And what do we know about him? We know that, um, that he worshipped the Lord of hosts. We didn't know what he looked like, but we knew he followed the Lord. So there's a big contrast here. We're introduced to this new family, and there's nothing about the Lord with them, just about their external um, appearance. So here in chapter 9, we're introduced to Saul, and we learn he's impressively tall and handsome, but nothing about his relationship with the Lord. Next, we find Kish's donkeys have gone astray. So he sends Saul and a servant to go find them. It's not mentioned in chapter 9, but we do find out in chapter 10, verse 26, that Saul's home is in Gibeah. So the search for the donkeys starts in Gibeah. They go through the southern lands of the hill country of Ephraim, then through Shalish and Shalim. They double back through the land of Benjamin and end up in Ramah. And you're like, I've already tuned out because that's a lot and you don't, it probably means nothing to you. But all of this travel is mentioned in one verse, just verse 4. And also in verse 4, just verse 4, three times it says they did not find them. This emphasized the point that Saul failed at the job he was called to do. There is even more here than the modern-day American would get, and it's, but you'll get it if you do some map work. And that's where I come in. All right, I did the map work. Actually, Jeff did the math work and showed me, but I just hadn't gotten to it yet. But um, the original readers, though, would know exactly what was going on when they, when they heard this. And you might think, wow, that's a big area they covered. I mean, I mentioned like four cities, and it's not. The area Saul and the servant spends three days scouring is a small area. So the picture we get from this search of donkeys is of a shepherd that isn't a good shepherd. He's inept, not someone you'd want in charge of a large herd. And that's significant because all the patriarchs, all the significant leaders of Israel were described as the shepherds of God's flock. And we see Saul is a terrible shepherd because he failed at his job. Remember three times they could not find them was mentioned. So he failed at his job at finding them. So he tells his servant they should go home. But the servant has an idea. The servant knows they're close to a town where a well-respected man of God lives. Man of God is, is designated for one who serves God and usually possesses insight into God's word and, and purposes. And it's here we see it's the servant not giving up, but throwing out a possible solution to their problem. The servant has boldness and perseverance. The servant's knowledge and resourcefulness highlights the fact that Saul has deficiencies. So instead of Saul agreeing with, agreeing with enthusiasm to his idea, he just responds with hesitancy. Uh, we have nothing to bring him. That's how Saul responds. Now it's important to note a, a cultural note right here. When one consulted a seer in the day, it was customary to bring a gift as a gesture of goodwill. Gifts were a crucial part of how society interacted with each other in the ancient world. They were given to friends, guests, and almost anyone who wished, who they would wish to treat honorably or have good relations with. If you know anything about Becky going back to China to visit Peter's family, she has a whole suitcase full of gifts for people. There are certain cultures where not bringing a gift would be insulting. Not because they expect something, it is a representation of how you honor someone. So that's just important for when he said, ah, we don't have anything to bring to him. 
Saul, as far as he can tell, claims they have no bread or anything to give to the seer. Saul, a son of a wealthy man. Saul is without any resources right here. He even knows the customs of the day. And he knows he's going on this trip to find donkeys. Saul failed to make adequate preparations for his trip. Then the servant once more takes the initiative, comes to the rescue, and shows he has some silver to give. And by doing so, shows again Saul's failure to provide. Saul eventually accepts the servant's proposal, and the two turn towards the city where the seer may be found. Saul was not the leader in this situation, but followed the words of another, his servant. So the two travelers arrive in the city and approach the well. They ask two women drawing water if they've seen the seer. The young woman's reply reveals the timing of the arrival of Saul and his servant was remarkable. Verse 12 says, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. What a coincidence. Saul and his servant arrive at the same time the seer does. Saul and his servant arrive at the same time. And you might think, wow, what a coincidence. But us Christian women know it's actually providence. Providence is God's way of providing for the needs of his people. The people just demanded a king in the last chapter, and the Lord said he'd give them that. Providence is that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way that the Lord rules over his world and sustains his people. And he frequently does it over, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives. And he even does it even if we have biases or our wills. He works through all of that. So here we have a common situation, looking for lost donkeys, traveling, deciding to give up, suggesting an idea, finding silver, asking people for help. It seems natural and ordinary to us. But from God's perspective, it was planned. God was orchestrating events for his purposes and glory. And we know that because we've been saying that this whole time. Ever since the beginning of 1 Samuel, we see God's hand working in all these things. So it shouldn't be a shock that he's working even here. And as we end scene one, we read in verse 14 that Samuel is named for the first time in the chapter. And Saul and his servant see Samuel, but don't recognize who he is yet. So this takes us to our second scene, chapter 9, verses 15 through 10-1. And this scene is a found king. So we had lost donkeys on a found king. This is scene number two. In verses 15 and 16, the focus changes to Samuel's perspective. And we get a flashback because it says, the day before. We are told by the narrator that the Lord reveals to Samuel that in one day's time, the Lord will send a man from the tribe of Benjamin, and he is the one Samuel is to anoint as prince or leader for the people. God is moving, even right here, more of God's providence. The whole choosing Saul was God's will and guided by his providence. Each step of Saul's journey in the search for donkeys was directed by the hand of the Lord. The Lord even provides Samuel with the knowledge of who the leader would be. The Lord calls them my people three times in verse 16. The Lord is not relaxing his rule over Israel. He might be giving them the king, but he is still ruling. Then we read in verse 17, 
it like goes right back to the storyline of the chapter when we get to verse 17. Simultaneously, Samuel sees Saul as the Lord identifies Saul to him. Saul doesn't know who Samuel is as he approaches and inquires about the seer. Saul is clueless. How could Saul not know the great prophet? The servant had heard of Israel's great leader. Samuel was the most famous man of Israel. Samuel lived about five miles away from where Saul grew up. So it appears that Saul is completely unaware that the great judge of Israel, whose words always come true, remember, I don't remember what chapter it was, his words don't fall to the ground. Samuel is the most famous man of Israel, and Saul is unaware of this great judge and how he lives in the town next door. Saul's lack of awareness of Samuel was part of his general ignorance of what was going on and his insensitivity to spiritual matters. Samuel is the seer, authenticates his prophetic role by revealing to Saul his inmost thoughts. Because Saul talks to Sam, Samuel talks to Saul about the donkeys. He relieves Saul's mind by informing him that his father's donkeys had been found. Saul never mentioned the donkeys to Samuel, but Samuel then tells Saul that all of Israel is eagerly awaiting his benevolent reign. And Saul responds, I'm sure he was totally puzzled by this, and he's like, um, how can that be? How could you assign such a significant role to me? Samuel, knowing this, I mean, because Saul says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, which is a small tribe, the smallest tribe that there is. Saul is so puzzled by this, but Samuel, knowing this is who God chose, brushes aside Saul's protest and ushers Saul into the hall with the servant. And into the hall is basically a large dining room in the high place. And instead of giving the seer a gift, you know, that silver that the servant found, it's Saul and his servant that receive a gift. Samuel gives them a place of honor at the table. And even more, Saul is given the best cut of meat. After the meal, the three men go to Samuel's house. The next day, Samuel tells Saul to dismiss, dismiss his servant. And Saul was to stay, and Samuel promised Saul that he would make known to you the word of the God, of the word of God. The Lord has told Samuel to anoint Saul as leader over Israel, and Samuel fulfills the command, being careful to inform Saul that this anointing is from the Lord. And as we enter our third scene, we see Samuel has not finished speaking the word of God to Saul. So our third scene is a unique confirmation. This is chapter 10, verses 2 through 16. God means to give Saul success. Samuel tells Saul that you are to be the one God has chosen to lead his people. You're going to fight the Philistines, and you will beat them. Then Samuel gives a list, a bunch of proofs that Saul is God's choice for this. And these proofs are three signs. Three signs are given to Saul. The first sign, I'm just going to summarize them. The first sign that um, Samuel tells Saul is going to happen to him. The first one is two men are going to meet you at Rachel's tomb saying your donkeys have been found. So predicting the exact location and the exact words that would be said. The second sign, three men are going to meet you at the Oak of Tabor, and they will be on their way to worship. They'll have bread, goats, and wine, and they will ask about your welfare, and they'll give you two loaves of bread. 
So more predicting a location and more specific details of what will actually happen. Then lastly, the third sign, Samuel says to Saul, when you approach Gibeah, you will meet a group of prophets and they'll be fresh from the high place and they will speak God's truth. They will be prophesying. They'll be playing instruments and the Holy Spirit will rush upon you and you will join in their prophesying. And these signs, all of these will, are to prove to Saul that this new spirit that comes upon him for a short time, all these events on the spirit of the Lord is to confirm Saul is the one God chosen, has chosen to be the leader, the prince, the king of God's people, Israel. Now note, the Holy Spirit's prophetic presence is never said to be within Saul. It never says within Saul. It only comes upon him temporarily. It's a confirmation that God has chosen Saul to be king. It's not a statement about Saul's eternal condition. It's the same, it's the same, um, hold on. It's the same about the confirmation about Saul being given another heart in verse 6. Verse 6 says, the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will be turned into another man. Now that word turn isn't the word used when an unbeliever turns from their sin to trust Jesus and becomes a new man. It's not the same Hebrew word. It's not that Hebrew word meaning turning. It's not the same Hebrew turn word meaning repent. The word turn that's being used here with Saul is a word meaning something overcomes you so you flip. Like someone bumps into you so you move. Or a wind pushes you in a direction so you move that way. There is nothing here to indicate, no comment that Saul has, Saul's turn has to do with eternal destiny. The point of this is to show it's God doing the work. There isn't anything in Saul that could have him prophesying. God is the one in control. God picked Saul. God is the one who will do great things through Saul. Saul's just along for the ride. All these signs came about as Saul, Samuel predicted. These signs should have signified to Saul that he does have the Lord's authorization for kingship, that Saul has the Lord's presence to carry out the demands of kingship. These signs were to assure Saul. So how about you? If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit continuously dwelling in you. And anything good you do is because of Christ, not your ability. Do you realize what God has called you to do? You can do it, not in your own strength, but in God's strength. When you have days where you are at your end, when it's so hard you don't know how to go on, and that could be you tonight, and I'm so glad you came. But we all have those days, and if you haven't had one yet, you will have one. But when you have those days, do you realize that you can do it because you have the Christ? When you have a moment where you just can't go on, you have forgotten that the Lord's spirit is in you. So when you get to that point where you are at your end, pray and be reminded. Cry out to God. Give him your pain, your sorrow, your weakness, and he will give you strength to continue. Not your strength, but his. We have been given far more than Saul was given. He was given a temporary kingship. And we have an eternal standing as co-heirs with Christ. 
If you're in Christ, you always have the Lord working on your behalf, and God's ways are always good. The narrator chooses to give more detail to the third sign. It was for sure to underscore Saul's ability and highlight the Lord's power. But maybe the narrator also detailed the third sign so he could include the reaction of the people. The astonishment over the change in Saul was so memorable that the, fo the folks who saw it coined a proverb. Look at the end of verse 12 of chapter 10. They made a proverb, is even Saul among the prophets? Now that's probably not a proverb you have hanging in your kitchen on a sign, but it became a proverb. It was such a dramatic, amazing event. So the narrator closes the third scene with Sam, Saul's uncle. Saul has just seen and experienced these miraculous prophecies. I mean, a proverb became of it. Then he encounters his uncle. When Saul meets with his uncle, he tells his uncle nothing about it. The narrator, narrator ends the scene with a secret. The Lord is always orchestrating and managing his kingdom that way. God is always working on the deliverance of his people, but we don't see it. He works secretly. We can clearly see surface matters like lost donkeys, but the Lord often maintains his kingdom in an undercover way. This is where his children show their faith. We know God's purposes, promises are true and sure. So we live by faith that God is working for us, and that should give us the strength and encouragement to carry on with joy. So we have our last scene. In chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, the king publicly selected. Samuel gathered the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, do you remember Mizpah? We've talked about this in the past. It's the high tower where the people go to seek God. It's where Israel went to receive forgiveness from the Lord back in chapter 7 that Becky taught, taught us. So if there's any place Israel would make right with the Lord, this is the town. They've done it before here, but they aren't. They still want a human king. Samuel reminds the people that it's always been the Lord who saved them. It's always been the Lord that saved them and their forefathers from all their calamities and all their distress. Saul makes clear to the people that God is prepared to grant their request for a king despite its being an implicit rejection of God's rule over them. The Lord's choice of Saul is made known publicly through the casting of lots. What was a secret anointing in chapter 9 is now declared public to Israel. Everyone will see out of all the tribes, the king is picked. And, it, and then it goes to the tribe of Benjamin that's chosen. Then it's narrowed down by clan, and eventually Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen or taken by Lot. Even though the Lot chooses Saul, he's nowhere to be found. The Lord has to tell Israel where Saul is. The Lord tells them he's hiding in the baggage. So the people find him and had Saul in his tall stature stand in front of all, and he looks the part of the king despite his strange hiding behavior. Then Samuel presents Saul to the people, and they shout, Long live the king. Samuel proceeds to tell Israel all the regulations that a king must follow, how a covenant king should conduct himself, and how they should respect his authority. Samuel then carefully ensures his words are recorded in a book. Then everyone returned home, and among those departing is Saul. There is no record that the king addressed the people or initiated any action. Saul just goes home. 
A group of men escorts Saul on his way, and these men are favorably against Saul being king. The text calls them worthless. And where have we seen worthless before? Eli's sons. Worthless describes people who don't know the Lord. And so, too, here at the end of chapter 10, we have a group of worthless men questioning Saul's ability to be king. And Saul remains quiet. He doesn't engage with them. And you might think, wow, those worthless men are right about Saul, because I know the rest of the story. Those worthless men are right. But that's not the intention of the narrator. The intention of the narrator isn't for you to go, oh, those men are right. The narrator wants you to see that the rebellion of these worthless men isn't against Saul, it's against the Lord. The Lord chose Saul, and the Lord had Saul anointed. The Lord had cast the lots on Saul. These men are questioning and rejecting the Lord and the Lord's ways. So what's going on with Saul and the baggage? Well, for Israel, we see that they are so utterly dependent on the Lord, even to the point of finding their king once their king has been chosen for them. Israel can't manage apart from God. And what's up with the hiding? Well, before I go there, I want to refer back to the last scene, what Saul did when he lied to his uncle. Saul didn't tell his uncle all that happened with Samuel. Saul didn't tell his uncle everything. And I wasn't exactly sure how to interpret the lying because nothing is said about it. So just because you don't tell all the truth doesn't mean that's the truth, right? So admitting part of the truth is lying. But I I didn't really know how to talk about it because nothing else was said. So I wasn't really sure how to talk about that. I mean, Saul was afraid. Was he struggling with the fear of man and how his uncle would react? Is that why he stayed silent? Did the Lord shut his mouth because it wasn't the right time? Because it was a private anointing and it wasn't made publicly yet? I just didn't know. I didn't have the answer, but here in the last scene, I feel like it colors that question in. It says Saul was hiding. Not that he was busy doing a task somewhere else and the people went to fetch him. He was hiding and the Lord had to point out where he was to find him. Now I know for sure that Saul had fear and an insecurity ruling his heart. So much so that he hides. Again, not the qualities you want in a king. Saul's fear and insecurity at the end of our text are just as dominant as his good looks in the beginning of our text. Saul looks the part of a king, but he turns out to be a lot like us. Insecure, self-centered, and flawed. When we reject God as king, we are left with ourselves. We can see the story of Saul is like the story of the fall of man all over again, and the story of ourselves. We try hard, oh, we try hard to look the part. We appear to be in control, to be confident and successful, but the truth is is that looking the part is not enough. What matters is the heart. What matters is the person inside. So right up front, we, right as we meet the king that has been asked for, we are challenged and warned about judging appearances. Last week in chapter 8, Israel rejected the king already provided for them. And this week in chapters 9 and 10, we see the people get the king they asked for. As we marched through 9 and 10, we learned about this king the people wanted, what they wanted for their satisfaction. And we see Saul's glaring deficiencies. 
God gives them what they ask for, and in doing so, and the people don't even realize it, but God is judging them. And it's this lack of kingliness in Saul that points us to the true king that we need for survival. Remember, need is survival. Want is satisfaction. And God in his mercy gives us the king that we need. And we know the end of the story. We know Saul will prove not to be not the man after God's own heart. Saul will ultimately not be the king God wants for his people. Saul will turn out to be the king that Samuel described. Saul will be a taker. And unfortunately, so will every other king that comes after him, except God. God's not a taker. He's a giver. We need Jesus. Jesus is the king that we need. In almost every instance, Jesus stands in contrast with Saul. And here's a few. Saul, the inept shepherd. And who is Jesus? In John chapter 10 that we studied three years ago, Jesus is the good shepherd. The good shepherd who goes looking for his lost sheep and finds them. Saul, the anointed king who goes and hides. And who is Jesus? Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and 19 tell us, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, this is Jesus talking, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight of the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the anointed king on whom the Spirit came down in power, who did not hide from his calling but willingly accepted the way of the cross. This is the King Jesus. And he summons us in love to bend our knee to him. So what kind of king are you asking for? The king you want for fleeing satisfaction, who will ultimately do you no good? Or do you seek the king that you need for your survival? Thank you.